This is Frank Rausch, the host of the New Books in Christian Studies Network. And I just finished having a fascinating interview with Dr. Ernest Young, the author of Ecclesiastical Colony, China's Catholic Church and the French Religious Protectorate. Uh, In this very well and thoroughly researched book, using archives from multiple different countries, Dr. Young provides a fascinating look at how the France um, atten- uh, well successfully established its own religious protectorate in China, presenting itself as the defender of Catholic missionaries of many different countries, not simply French missionaries, and how then this was used to establish the um, French power and French influence in China. Uh, Dr. Young skillfully shows how French, or uh, I should say foreign missionaries, were willing to cooperate with this protectorate, and how um, an alliance between uh, some of these missionaries, though, uh, the Vatican and Chinese Catholics, helped challenge this protectorate. And Dr. Young also skillfully shows how the the resistance um, to establishing a truly indigenous uh, Chinese hierarchy and Chinese priesthood um, that was caused by this protectorate does cause problems for the Catholic Church later on once you have the communist takeover, though the effective challenge to it, um, or I should say the mildly effective challenge to it by the Vatican, some missionaries and uh, Catholics does allow the establishment of some Chinese bishops there, which kind of mitigates um, the pressures brought about by this ecclesiastical colony. Um, So fascinating book, and I hope you will enjoy the interview. Great. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Christian Studies. I'm Dr. Franklin Rausch of Lander University, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Ernest Young about his new book, Ecclesiastical Colony, China's Catholic Church and the French Religious Protectorate, uh, published in 2013 by Oxford University Press. Uh, Dr. Young, welcome to our show. Thank you. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Uh, I was born in Brooklyn, New York, uh, but brought up mainly in New Hampshire, Manchester, New Hampshire. Uh, And I went to school uh, in Manchester High School. I was actually here in England because of my father being over there for a bit. Uh, But uh, I went through the public schools in Manchester, New Hampshire, and then went uh, uh, briefly to a Quaker school in Pennsylvania called George School. And then I went to Harvard University as an undergraduate and uh, spent some time in Japan right after graduating and then came back to uh, to Harvard Graduate School where I got myself into Asian studies and into the history PhD program there. Uh, So I finally got a a, a doctorate degree there. And uh, since then, uh, I taught first at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire and then uh, at the University of Michigan where I uh, finished my career and retired uh, a few years ago. Uh, is that, that's a sketch. <laughs> okay. And how did you make a shift over then from, you said you'd spent time in Japan. How did you end up in chi- interested in China? Well, uh, there were lots of uh, accidents, you might say, in the, in, in the playing out of all this. Uh, when I finished college, uh, I... I uh, was going to go to law school, but a friend of mine, a classmate who was Japanese, 
uh, said, how about you'd like to go to Japan to teach English? And that sounded more interesting. <laughs> so I went to Japan. <laughs> and while I was there, I decided it was my first exposure to Asia. I hadn't studied it at all in college. But then um, I got interested, started learning Japanese and decided I would like to try it out in graduate school. So I went back to school. And in the graduate program where I was, uh, it happened at that time that the Japanese program was, I think, lagging some. And the Chinese side of things was very active and much more enticing. So I gradually shifted over into the Chinese history, retaining an interest always in the Japan side as well. And my teaching has been about both China and Japan. And how then did you uh, come to have an interest in Catholicism in Japan and, and specifically the French, I'm sorry, Catholicism in China yeah. and specifically the French religious protectorate? Yes. Well, that was, uh, again, uh, not anticipated. Uh, I was doing research uh, on some other topic altogether in the National Archives in Britain, the English, uh, the foreign ministry archives there. And I happened to come across, uh, was a t I was pursuing a Chinese topic, but I happened to come across this rather uh, wonderful collection of documents about a particular incident uh, where uh, three British subjects were uh, killed in the course of a riot in 1906. And it was so much fuller than anything I'd ever seen before. I really got interested and I decided this is a topic I, I couldn't, you know, I should do something with this. But it turned out, right, right away, I discovered that the crux of it was really the French and the French Catholics in the same city of Nanchang in central China. And I, so I said, well, what's going on here? Uh, and I explored the French side and I decided I should go to Paris and do uh, investigations on the French documents since the British were really, the French were really the primary actors in this whole, whole thing. And uh, I just got fascinated by the whole idea of the French religious protectorate, which I've got, I, you know, I'd heard, I think, there was such a thing, but I'd never looked at it carefully. And the more I looked at it, the more extraordinary it seemed to me. It was ambitious, pretentious, and, uh, you know, almost a little crazy. Uh, so I, <laughs> I became fascinated by this phenomenon, and uh, and one thing led to another. Uh, so I, uh, I pursued, uh, pursued the topic. I had, had to study some Italian because I knew I would end up going to Rome <laughs> and studying uh, the, uh, using the, the uh, archives of the Vatican there and also various religious archives <clears throat> of religious organizations in both France and in, uh, in, 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 in Italy. So uh, anyway, that uh, and it was fortunately a, uh, a publication of uh, major collections of Chinese documents uh, about missions. So I was able to use the, the library for that sort of thing. And uh, uh, that, that became eventually this book, all that work. Right. Well, it really shows, I mean, the amount of work, this is just uh, for our listeners, this is just, a, it's a very long and rich book with a huge amount of footnotes that show all this, this uh, great archival research um, that you were able to do. Yeah. So I wonder that if you, <laughs> well, I, I wonder that if you can start us off just telling us how, what is the French religious protectorate and how did it get set up? Yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, the Catholic church, had has a presence in China for quite a long time, uh, continuously from the late 16th century. There had been some 
missionary work in earlier dynasties, uh, but this, it hadn't been continuous. But from the late 16th century, there's always been a Catholic church in China of some kind or other. Um, but there was a long stretch uh, from 1724 until the 1840s when it was proscribed. Uh, at, you know, for the, in the late 16th and in the, through the 17th century, they've been pretty much open. Uh, there were problems, but uh, the missionaries were able to come most of the time and can, and do their work. But from 18, 1724, they were excluded legally. Um, prescription by the government. Uh, there was been arguments about certain rights that the uh, Rome decided uh, were unacceptable for Catholics, and the emperor was uh, didn't disagree with them. <laughs> One thing led to another, so Catholicism became illegal in China. Uh, and uh, but then in the 19th century, in the 1840s, uh, Western countries used their industrialized military power to compel China uh, to allow a, a Western presence, a bigger one. There had been also a very small one from, by merchants, but uh, and, that, and that was much enlarged. And by 1860, the country as a whole was uh, fully open to missionaries and their evangelism. Uh, and the missionaries won exceptional privileges in this new system that had been forced on China uh, by Western military power. And that includes right to buy land, uh, to build churches and other buildings, uh, and to request Chinese official protection against any discrimination. Uh, Now, the French government had played a role in the missionaries' acquisition of these uh, privileges, and the French government declared itself to be the protector of all Catholics in China. And they called this the, the French religious protectorate. So it was extravagant, as I said uh, already when I first met this. Uh, its reach was rather extraordinary. It was not just French missionaries who were to be protected, but all Catholic missions. Uh, this included Spanish missions that have been around for a long time, and Italian, Belgian, German, Austrian, Irish missions. All of them were now going to be protected by the French uh, authorities. Even more extraordinarily, even Chinese Catholics were now going to be protected by France, which is, is sort of an odd circumstance. Uh, it, standing between French Chinese subjects and their emperor. Um, and through the use of these special privileges and the backing of French power, including warships and Chinese waters, uh, the missionaries became uh, locally very important figures, and their Chinese Catholic constituents enhanced their local clout through all this support. So unsurprisingly, uh, this situation evoked much local resentment, and this resentment uh, was sometimes combined with very hostile suppositions of, uh, on the part of the neighbors of these Chinese Christians about the behavior of the Catholic missionaries, about the behavior of Chinese Catholics, and there were stories of black magic and child abuse and many other things, all coming out, I think, of this sort of this uh, environment that. Produced hostility. And one major result of all this was the many incidents of hostilities, including serious violence, beatings, burnings, killings. And the French diplomatic authorities undertook to compel the Chinese government 
to punish the culprits of any such incident, to uh, indemnify the Christians and the missions, pay them money for what they'd suffered, and to discipline Chinese officials who had not prevented the trouble. So this is how the French religious protectorate structured itself. Uh, and uh, there were lots of ironies in it. Uh, but one point about it was that the legalities of this protectorate were unclear in terms of international law of the time. Uh, by what right or by whose authority did France protect all these Catholics in China? The short answer was that there were these treaties that had been signed by the Chinese government with foreign powers, including France. Um, and the treaties did provide uh, for Christians to be able to practice their religion, for missionaries to evangelize, but there was no provision that said the French would police this. So the French religious protectorate depended on Catholic missionary bishops coming with complaints to French diplomats, who would then in turn pressure Chinese officials to satisfy the complaints. Now, uh, this structure had many enemies. Uh, Chinese officials were pushed around by it and sometimes demoted uh, from their, in their uh, official careers under French pressure. And countries other than France that had their own Catholic missionaries in China disliked this presumption of France protecting their nationals and always looking for ways of trying to get, get around this French uh, claim. And it turned out that uh, popes, at least some of them, were unhappy with this French, uh, with French diplomats having such a central position in the workings of the Catholic Church in China, in effect standing between the pope and his Chinese church. Now, a large point that comes out of all this is that France could not force the bishops to come to French officials with their complaints. Uh, so the system of the French religious protectorate depended on their doing so, so that the French would have an occasion to uh, show their power and to demonstrate uh, their position as a great power in China. Uh, so the French authorities were always trying to show the bishops and the Vatican how important French role was in, for Catholicism in China. And the result, I think, was that they overdid it. Uh, they rushed in to support the missions irrespective of the facts. And uh, the Chinese noticed this <laughs> and uh, came to their own conclusions about all this system. Um, they, and the Chinese side tried to do various things about it. Uh, one uh, uh, crisis occurred in 1885-86 when the Chinese government, trying to get around the French religious protectorate, offered the Vatican direct dip diplomatic relations between the Vatican and the Chinese government. Now, the French government, which as soon as it heard about this, was dead set against it because it feared that if it occurred, if the Chinese government had direct relations with the Vatican, the missionary bishops would take their troubles to the Pope's representative in Beijing instead of the French diplomats. There was no papal representative at the time, but that would have been created by diplomatic relations. Uh, so if that had happened, this French prestige in China, which was built around this French religious protectorate, would be gravely damaged. So the French government felt very threatened 
itself and it decided to uh, you know, pre- present the Pope with an ultimatum uh, saying they would take retribution against the Catholic Church in France if the Vatican went through with it. So the, the, the French government used the fact of the France being a primarily Catholic country as a kind of hostage to force the Vatican to uh, drop this idea. And the Pope did indeed back down. That was something he couldn't face. So uh, this is the kind of thing that happened under these circumstances. It shows how you know there was a problem uh, always with this whole arrangement. Um, but it persisted. A similar round of this sort of efforts to establish diplomatic relations between the Chinese government and the Vatican occurred in 1918. Um, <clears throat> so the ironies of all this, uh, through the 19th century in particular, and into the early 20th, were compounded by the fact that the French government from the 1880s onwards, well, from at least 1879, was quite anti-clerical in its its domestic policy in France. Uh, So people noticed this, right? (laughs) That the French government in France was sort of against the church, but in China it was defending the church. Uh, And it was following this dictum, which one of the prime ministers announced openly, that anti-clericalism is not for export. That is to say, it's fine in France, but uh, elsewhere we defend the church. Uh, it seemed kind of cynical to a lot of observers. So all this while, incidents of hostility and violence directed against the missions continued. Uh, the most famous case is the Boxer Uprising 1900, of spectacular event, but also before and after that huge event. Uh, violence occurred frequently. Uh, and they'd also, by in the late 19th century, occasionally, I think a lot of us would be surprised by this, but between Catholics and Protestant communities in China uh, fought against each other. Actually, there were serious violence uh, between the two communities, small as they were as a percentage of the Chinese population. They nevertheless were spreading, and uh, Protestant communities were new from the middle of the 19th century, but were growing rapidly. And a large number of Protestant missionaries, British and American primarily. Um, so, uh, this is sort of where I came in uh, when I asked when you asked about how I got into this. Uh, this uh, in 1906, there was this major incident in an important Chinese city in the center of the country, uh, <clears throat> and there were nine foreigners were killed by a mob in retribution for what they thought had been an attack by on the part of the Catholic the head of the Catholic mission in the city uh, against a an imperial official who died from having his throat cut. Um, the, the actual details of this take a while to go into, but the point was that uh, this there was this rather sensational incident. There've been others. Uh, like it, but much bigger in the Boxer occasion, but others uh, in other times, they were similar, but this was one of the big ones. And there was a dire fallout from this affair. Um, and there was the, uh, at the same time, in the early 20th century, there was the spread of nationalist sentiment in the Chinese population. Uh, and so uh, the, the, the French government uh, saw that things had reps got too far and we wanted to pull back from the extremes of confrontation between 
the missions and the non-Christian Chinese and uh, so foreign diplomats saw a need saw a need to moderate their the intrusiveness and the Chinese nationalists were focused now on national strength rather than these community violence uh, events. They saw attacks on missionaries and Christians as a kind of distraction from the main issues, so it moderated somewhat. Uh, but but here we have, I think. Uh, you know, the moment where we we change the emphasis of what we're talking about to uh, the uh, effort uh, to undo this relationship of the Catholic Church uh, with French, uh, the French position in in China, and uh, so I, I would trans you know, this is sort of transition to the next theme which is the recognition by some missionaries and by officials in the Vatican that things have got off track. What are we going to do about it? Um, so I, uh, this is where I would introduce the figure of Vincent Lebb. Um, the, his, his name, his last surname is spelled L-E-B-B-E. Uh, I think in Flemish, which it's a Flemish name, it would be Lebbe, but he was a French speaker and they apparently had a, just the one syllable Leb. Anyway, he was a key figure in formulating a new perspective and giving it the public attention. He arrived in China in 1901, the year after the Boxer Uprising. And by the end of the decade, he had committed himself to uh, refashioning uh, the relations of the church with Chinese society. Uh, and uh, I would say he had two central propositions. One was that the church itself, the church should rid itself of the of French protection. And the second was that it should sinify, that is, it should establish the dignity uh, dignity for Chinese priests, and a there should be a Chinese hierarchy for the church. That is to say, there should be Chinese bishops. And I haven't said this yet, but throughout all this, uh, there have been Chinese priests way back, uh, going from the in the 17th century, beginning to uh, train and. Uh, Chinese Catholic priests, and they were uh, there were some number of them, but they were never uh, given uh, leadership positions. Even when the uh, there was the prescription of the church, and where missionaries did come, risk their lives by doing so, and had to be hidden all the time, and so forth. Still, uh, the hierarchy was always foreign. Uh, the, the Europeans uh, continued to claim throughout all of this the leadership positions in the church. Right. Um, so uh, the issue of, of whether there should be Chinese issues was very large. There had been one exception back in the end of the um, 17th century. Rome had kind of intervened and appointed some Chinese priest as a bishop. Uh, there was resistance locally, but he, he, he did get the job. Uh, but he was the only one in the whole time uh, up until uh, the early 20th century. So... Uh, this was one of the uh, the propositions that Vincent Lebb, this reforming Belgian missionary, had. Um, and indeed, he felt, and this was sort of the logic of the situation, that the only way to get rid of this French religious protectorate would be to have the church run by Chinese bishops. Um, if it were Chinese bishops, then the French religious protectorate could not operate any longer since it depended on foreign bishops coming with their complaints. Um, 
and the Chinese visitors would be could be counted on not to do that. Um, <clears throat> so, from Lev's point of view, having foreign bishops not only made the church look foreign, which it certainly did, but uh, they also these foreign bishops enjoyed too much uh, the comforts of French protection and would never willingly give it up. So you had to get rid of them uh, and have them replaced by Chinese leaders. Uh, so, uh, this, uh, he wasn't the only person having these thoughts, I think, but he just became, in effect, the spokesperson for it, the most well-known advocate of all this and a very active guy. He was the leading missionary in the northern city of Tianjin, which is not too far from Beijing. Uh, he was appointed there to run the operation uh, in 1906, and he stayed until 1916. So he had 10 years there of sort of experimenting with these policies. Uh, he joined with the leading citizens in the city in charitable works and in patriotic work, and he founded a Chinese daily newspaper that uh, became the leading newspaper of North China, uh, and he encouraged the patriotism of his parishioners as um, best he could. Uh, so uh, one could talk uh, quite a lot about who, the details of his uh, ministry there in Tianjin, but it came to a crisis when in 1916 he wrote a letter to the top French diplomat in Beijing protesting uh, what had been underway for a couple of years, uh, the French claim to expand their position in Tianjin, this, this uh, northern city, the, the chief commercial city really in North China. Uh, and this, I guess you have to take a, 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 a moment to explain what concessions were in China, that it was sort of an odd thing where foreign uh, representatives negotiated with local governments or with the national government uh, the rights of special residents and privilege in parts of major Chinese cities. And they were called concessions. They were still Chinese territory legally, but the foreign uh, representatives, usually consuls, uh, would in effect be the the, the managers of these areas where the foreigners would set up their own rules and uh, have even a small police force often of their own uh, and Chinese would come only under the conditions that the foreigners set for these parts of the city. Now Shanghai, which had started out in the early 19th century is not a very large town, uh, <clears throat> became the major foreign uh, city in the country and the the international settlement and the French concession, both concessions basically to bite their names, um, <clears throat> became the center of that city. <clears throat> in other places, not necessarily quite so central, but still uh, places that the, French, the foreigners sort of the, turned into um, enclaves for themselves, <clears throat> adjacent right. to or in, inside sometimes the uh, major cities of the country. So Tianjin had had these, it had a French one, and the French uh, wanted to expand it beyond what it was because the British was larger and they were envious and so forth. So 
uh, <laughs> the uh, French set about trying to do this, and they eventually decided they would just announce that they were taking over this stretch of t- land near the existing French concession, making it about twice as large. And the excuse right. that they gave was they were protecting the Catholic Church. Well, Leb, in his letter to the French uh, minister, the top diplomat in Beijing, said this was a terrible idea uh, and uh, excoriated the, the French for, for trying to do this. And, he, um, and the French government, in turn, then sought his expulsion from China, saying that he was confessing to being a kind of traitor to the French religious protectorate and so forth, accusing him of all sorts of things. <clears throat> And his his own ecclesiastical superiors, the bishop under, to whom he had to respond, and eventually the head of his order back in Paris too, they all cooperated in this effort to ease him out. Uh, they first sent him to other places in China, and then finally back to France. So he was exiled uh, from Tianjin, where he had established all these connections and had become a public figure, actually. Well, the news of this turmoil in the city of Tianjin um, over this attempted expansion uh, of the French concession, which produced, among other things, a workers' strike in the city, uh, and and then this exile of the extremely popular Father Leb, um, all this news uh, reached the Vatican. Uh, And Leb and his sympathizers, he had people who were working with him in all this, uh, they inundated the Vatican with essays and petitions about what was going on and advocating these uh, policies that uh, getting rid of the French religious protectorate and, and most importantly, uh, having Chinese bishops for the church in China. Uh, well, remarkably, the message got through. <laughs> um, one wouldn't necessarily expect that it would, but because it's a very hierarchical uh, organization, right? Right. The church, but it did get through. And after all, you could remember that the Vatican had its own history of being frustrated by France in it shaping of its own China policies, going back to that moment in the middle 1880s when the French used the French Church in, China, in France to, as a kind of a hostage to prevent the Vatican from making relations with China. And there's the recent sabotaging in 1918. Uh, uh, well, this comes after uh, Leb's exile, but they, they, that, that was uh, in the minds of the Vatican in the late uh, end of the first, second decade of the 20th century. So uh, <clears throat> Pope Benedict the fifteenth. Uh, took the bull by the horns, and he issued a scathing critique of the missions in 1919. I think a lot of people were surprised by this. <laughs> um, right. It, it was... Uh, uh, there was a build-up to it. They didn't do this overnight, but uh, been since 1916 anyway, and perhaps even in going back to the complaints from the 19th century, uh, they've been uh, you know, moving up toward this position of doing something about the situation in China. Now, in Pope Benedict's uh, uh, pronouncement, it was technically an apostolic letter, but everybody called it an encyclical, which is very similar, uh, he didn't single out the Chinese case, uh, but it was clearly the example that was on his mind. And 
uh, and the background to this, I guess you might say, is that it had been the papal policy, publicly anyway, their pronounced policy since the 17th century, uh, when the when they sort of got serious about global uh, missionary work, uh, it had been a primary goal since then of the missions that they should raise up an indigenous clergy and then hand over the management of the church, the local church, to them, to this indigenous clergy right. with the missionaries moving on to other challenges. <laughs> but this hadn't happened, except for the one case I mentioned already, the Chinese bishop in the late 17th century, appointed by Rome. And the evidence is that the European hierarchy in China, as well as most of the ordinary missionaries, wanted to keep it that way, uh, having Europeans in charge. And they open, openly feared, you can find statements uh, they made about this, they openly feared that there would be a takeover of the Chinese church by Chinese priests. So, um, you could say that uh, the situation in China uh, amounted to a centuries-long disregard of what was formal papal policy. Uh, and uh, Pope Benedict the 15th in his pronouncement on all this uh, noted this fact <laughs> and he criticized uh, the fact that the China missions had not produced uh, a clergy that had great had dignity and stature and had not produced Chinese bishops. Uh, he also criticized the linguistic deficiency of the foreign missionaries and, and he implied an unfavorable evaluation of their overall quality. <clears throat> so this was a fairly strong and harsh statement um, criticizing the, uh, that condition of, of the missions. Um, now the response of the missionaries in China uh, as well as, I would have to say, the Catholic missionary organizations with their headquarters in Europe, it was heavily negative. Uh, they said uh, the Pope had been misinformed, <laughs> that he'd been deceived. He'd been right, deceived yes. by the likes <laughs> of Vincent Lebb about the state of the Catholic Church in China and its real problems. <clears throat> so, um, it, you know, the Vatican uh, became aware of this resistance to its reformist orientation. Um, and about three years later, 1922, the Vatican, under a new pope, Pius the, uh, Benedict XV had died, Pius XI was uh, in place, and he uh, sent a papal representative to China uh, to live there on a long-term basis and to implement the Vatican's reform ideas. And it's important, I think, that these ideas, uh, which were formulated first by Benedict XV, were supported not just by that pope and then his successor, but also, very importantly, by the head of the propaganda, that is to say, the Vatican's central office for missions. Um, has many you know, other names you can call it, but that uh, it, traditionally, that uh, just calling it propaganda has been common. Uh, so the head of that... Uh, under Benedict XV, and who's kept on by the next pope, uh, and the Secretary of State, who is in effect the pope's foreign minister, those two people, the people who happened to be in those positions at that time, were also very supportive of these reform ideas. So the, the top, you might say, the top three people that are concerned with all this in the Vatican uh, were behind this. So it was fairly 
powerful, and they, as just said, sent a representative to China, a, what they called an apostolic delegate, who would represent the Pope uh, in, in China for spiritual religious purposes, not as a diplomat, um, but as a representative of, of the Church. So for right. about a decade, <clears throat> there was uh, a concerted effort from Rome and then through this papal representative in China to refashion China's Catholic Church. Um, not overnight. Uh, when the Vatican moves, it usually does so cautiously and gradually. But, but by 1926, yeah. <laughs> the Pope himself uh, summoned six Chinese priests to Rome and consecrated them as bishops in St. Peter's. <laughs> and the uh, apostolic delegate uh, forcefully negotiated jurisdictions for these new Chinese bishops in China. Uh, and incidentally, uh, Leb, Vincent Leb, who'd been exiled in Europe, was able to return to China uh, with one of these Chinese bishops newly created. And uh, he uh, took up his, his, his work in China until he died in 1940. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> more Chinese bishops were to follow these initial six, and other changes were instituted, including better language, Chinese language training for European missionaries. But these European missionaries did continue to predominate numerically, even as Chinese priests uh, gradually acquired some positions of responsibility. So um, that's, I think, the most important part of the story. The, the, but you have to say that the French government, had, which had, had tolerated the fait accompli, this, uh, this appointment of an apostolic delegate, a papal, dele papal delegate resident in China, they had uh, rather reluctantly said, oh, okay, we can't do much about that, it's already happened. But they weren't reconciled to the gradual sinicization of the Chinese church, that is to say, the substitution, the, the exchange of European bishops for Chinese bishops. Uh, they couldn't stop it altogether, but they certainly wanted to draw a line. And at the end of the 1920s, the French government mounted a serious, strenuous campaign with the help of some European bishops in China to check this process. And in particular, they wanted to prevent having a Chinese bishop in Beijing uh, with all the consequences of the valuable property there and so forth. It was a major center for Catholicism in China, that whole area. <clears throat> and uh, under this... Uh, concentrated effort to stop it. The Vatican did retreat from its forward movement. It didn't renounce its policy publicly, but it sort of, uh, it tapered off. <clears throat> and uh, along uh, one of the reasons, I think, was that the leadership in Rome did not keep its, uh, did not sustain its focus on this sinification notion. And the heads of the uh, these two important organizations in in, the, in Rome, that the propaganda and the Secretary of State, both were um, taken over by new prelates, new leaders who were not so keen on the policy, or at least weren't committed to it the same way. Uh, <clears throat> and the apostolic 
this reformist apostolic delegate that they'd sent back in 1922, he resigned in 1933. Uh, and the percentage of Chinese bishops as a total of all the, the Catholic bishops in China has stopped growing. Uh, it, it stuck at less than right. 20% of the bishops were Chinese. Uh, so there'd been some accomplishment in that decade from 22 to 33, but uh, it, it, it didn't continue really uh, without, there was, as I say, no formal uh, abdication from the policy, but it just wasn't pushed anymore. And the uh, resistance to it uh, was, uh, you could say, successful, at least in uh, stopping its forward movement. That is until after World War II, and then we're near the end of the story, when uh, this, after World War II, there was sort of a global politics of decolonization, and the French Religious Protectorate uh, formally came to an end because the treaties on which it was based were uh, dissolved. Uh, in this period, the Vatican established a new hierarchy in China with a somewhat larger proportion of Chinese bishops and archbishops including the first Chinese cardinal. But the hour was late. A civil war was starting in 1946, leading to the victory of the communists in 1949. And at that point, uh, while there were about over, over, the number isn't certain, but over 3 million uh, Catholic faithful in China. the, the church was still, although there had been some increase in the proportion of Chinese leaders, they were still dominated by foreign bishops when the communists came to power. Uh, these foreign bishops soon left or were expelled or in a few cases were jailed. Um, but um, it, 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 was, it, it was sort of a collapse for the moment uh, at the leadership level because uh, the, the Chinese were not in positions of authority in sufficient numbers to uh, keep the church going fully at that time. And the, so that presented the new problem, how do you replace the bishops that are gone? And that's a, a right. new a new set of political issues with the communist uh, Chinese Communist Party in power. <clears throat> so, I, by summary, I would say that the Catholic Church in China has had a long and variegated history, and I've only dealt right. with a part of it, uh, leaving out which what transpired before 19th century and what has happened since the middle of the 20th century. But in the roughly hundred years I do treat. Uh, it could say that it's a mixed record for the politics of the Catholic Church in China. I don't try to, in my book, don't describe the evangelism and the charitable works of the missionaries, which is obviously a very big component of what they thought they were doing. <clears throat> but, uh, but it's this political side that I focus on. And then this foreign, foreign, sorry, this foreign hierarchy which ran the church understandably perhaps, but with serious long-term deficits, accepted and encouraged these links with the power politics of France and eventually the European states too, which is a minor part of the story. Uh, And it seems to me that the result contributed in major ways to the worsening of China's relationships with the Western world in in this period. And it's remembered today in China uh, unfavorably, mostly. Um, but there was also this major resistance within the church to this fateful alliance of the church and secular power. 
And it all along, there'd been some discontent with this bubbling under the surface, but it was in the early 20th century that it boiled over and produced an epic battle in which the Vatican itself was engaged. <clears throat> so in any overall evaluation of the period, one might say that this effort at recovery, <clears throat> although it turned out to be not enough, it was surely a redeeming element in the story. <clears throat> so that's... Well, I leave that with this mildly optimistic note <laughs> that it was there were different elements in all of this, and uh, it was a complicated story in which there were uh, some some heroes, I think, uh, in in the, in the right. Saga. So uh, that's where I start. If there's anything further you would like me to delve into, I'd be happy to. Well, thank you. That that was a wonderful summary of the book. And um, you had mentioned there this idea of the, you know, there's some heroes like uh, Father Labe. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about um, the Chinese uh, laymen, yeah. especially, and, and the other Chinese who assisted yes. Father Labe. Yes, well, that's certainly a interesting part of the story. And uh, it, it's a little hard to get at the voice of the Chinese clergy. Uh, every once in a while, it breaks through. Um, but because it's part of the hierarchical character of the Catholic Church, that you uh, you couldn't communicate with the world except through the bishop, and it was the bishop who was the problem. <laughs> so we, right. <laughs> we've experienced some of that in, in our own uh, troubles these days, but. Uh, so every, every once in a while, you do get a glimmer of that. Uh, there's one case where the lay people, the Catholic lay people, decided back in the, um, I think it was the 1880s, <clears throat> that, that that maybe 1890s, that they they were upset with their bishop, <clears throat> and he was obviously a bad a bad news for the Chinese Catholics in the area, <clears throat> and they went to their Catholic priests, Chinese priests, and said, why don't you tell the Vatican about this, and they say, well, we can't, because we have to do it through the bishop. <laughs> so, only way we communicate, <laughs> and he's the problem. That sort of thing. So you do you do get occasional voices uh, coming through, but in the early 20th century, uh, there's some prominent Catholic laymen who speak out very strongly about all this, and one of them is the founder of an important newspaper, the Dagung Bao, and they, the name of a newspaper which still continues today, it had a uh, uh, they gave it a foreign French title, impartial, impartial, which is, I guess, uh, not a bad translation for the Chinese. Anyway, uh, it was a very uh, important newspaper at the, in the early 20th century and has had this sentence even today. <clears throat> and he was a uh, convert um, to Catholicism. And he uh, and he uh, was a vigorous reformer, and his 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 newspaper uh, was a major uh, a major feature of the early 20th century scene. And he continued to be very friendly uh, with the Catholic Church in the large, but he uh, had his problems with the hierarchy. Um, uh, he the, he, the 
bishop in Beijing wanted him to tow certain political lines, and uh, he said, no, I won't, and he gave back the investment money that the bishop had given him, and uh, right. he recruited other funds from the general population. Anyway, he's one of them, and then there was a, 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 a Indianger is his name, uh, and then there's Ma uh, Shangpo, uh, who I talk about some, uh, is some in the book, and he was a uh, uh, from an old Catholic family, actually, his in his father's side, he went back to the Ming Dynasty, way back to fourteenth <clears throat> century. Uh, uh, Any, anyway, not that's wrong. What am I saying? Anyway, uh, he. Uh, <clears throat> Um, uh, he, he was a uh, Catholic, trained as a, uh, went to Catholic school back in the, in the uh, 1860s and became a priest, actually, but then uh, felt he wasn't being treated properly by the foreigners who were in charge of his fate, and he quit and uh, had a very uh, prestigious uh, government career uh, in the Chinese government. <clears throat> Uh, and eventually he reconciled himself uh, with the church again back in the 19 in the in the 1890s and continued as a very uh, prominent intellectual figure in China generally uh but he remained a a catholic and good friends of with Leb and his friends too and wrote uh, publicly about his complaints with how the Chinese church looked too foreign. It had all these foreign root, uh, bishops in it, and he, he pointed out that uh, we don't have this problem with Buddhists or with Muslims, even though these religions are as foreign as the Catholic Church. They come from other countries and were originally in other languages, uh, but it's the Catholic Church that <clears throat> looks so foreign because, <clears throat> excuse me, all its leaders are are foreign. And we must do something about that and so forth. He was instrumental in founding uh, several institutions of higher learning. Um, Aurora College, which became university, was with his own money and and the land and so forth he founded. But then he went on to help found what's uh, Fudan University, one of the most distinguished uh, universities in China today. And then later on, he played a role in founding another university in Beijing. Um, Furen, which continues in Taiwan today. Anyway, uh, he was a, uh, a important spokesperson for all of this and uh, worked with Leb and others uh, to do something about it. Uh, and then we have uh, in 1920 a series of statements made by uh, both uh, both Catholic priests and Catholic laymen uh, in response to uh, the, uh, a uh, request by the Pope that people uh, tell him <laughs> what's going on in China, and uh, right, and I don't think that they expected to get this uh, outburst, but there were a number of uh, major statements made uh, collectively by um, lay and, and priestly Catholics um, addressing the Pope and telling him. Uh, what a set of problems there are in China, and complaining about the current situation. This was uh, around 1919, 1920. Um, <clears throat> so these sorts of things continued uh, right up to the end. Uh, before, as the communists came in, there were always important Catholics who were uh, making statements uh, about how things should change, and often working in that direction and making having some effect.
Right. That's really fascinating. I was really glad to see that you were able to to capture that. And I also one thing I thought was really fascinating about Father Lay was that you'd, you'd mentioned how he'd become very, very popular. But he was working in Tianjin, which has a very checkered yes. history uh, regarding yes, Catholicism. Exactly. Yeah, it is. How did he turn this around? Or I should ask for um, what happened there um, for our listeners who aren't familiar with Chinese history, and how did he turn it around? uh, There have been uh, two major moments before he arrived uh, that suggested uh, it's a very problematic place for Catholics. The first was in 1870 when uh, there was a uh, set of charges by local folks against the Catholic Church and by the and the uh, uh, the orphanage that was being run by Catholic nuns, uh, cl- claiming that they were abusing the children and engaging in uh, atrocious magical acts using children's bodies and stuff like that, uh, and the French consul. The local French diplomatic representative there, he got involved and he actually, uh, it it was very hot. Uh, And uh, there were people trying to settle the thing, but this consul took out a gun and started shooting to kill the Chinese attended right. to a Chinese official out in the public street, and this produced a riot. Uh, so a number of people were killed, some, I forget, seven, nine, 20 or so. Foreigners were killed, and lots of Chinese Catholics were killed, <clears throat> and the uh, buildings were burned, and so forth. And so this so-called Tianjin Massacre uh, was a major event and uh, caused all kinds of diplomatic consequences. Uh, and then again in the Boxer uh, episode, when there was this Boxer uprising, um, Tianjin was one of the cities uh, where they, the Boxers, the anti-Christian popular movement, uh, created a lot of destruction. <laughs> and uh, so, yes, there was this, uh, you might say, almost an anti-Christian tradition in Tianjin. And one of the reasons Leb was appointed by his bishop to run the place was that nobody else would take the job. <laughs> but Leb... Right. Leb uh, he turned it around. Uh, and he was. Uh, this is part of why he's so prominent. I think he was just an extraordinary guy, who had great skills uh, in various dimensions. Uh, first of all, linguistically, he uh, learned Chinese quickly and well, and never stopped improving his Chinese. And he became a, a very popular public speaker. He could uh, entrance audience, large Chinese audiences with his. Uh, lectures in Chinese, <clears throat> and um, he also very deliberately uh, tried to be friendly with uh, important people in the community, uh, not non Christians, and <clears throat> and joined uh, all sorts of charitable organizations that were again not necessarily Christian. In fact, some of them were clearly not at all Christian, but he felt he should be uh, contributing to the general public welfare, <clears throat> and uh, he made a lot of friends. Um, People who uh, admired him enormously. Um, so he, he it was a it was personality, and he was also aesthetic, 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 and uh, you know he lived a uh, Puritan kind of life, and uh, he was admired for that too. I think by a lot of the Chinese uh, people who knew about him. So he became kind of famous and uh, uh, well known, uh, quite beyond the Catholic Church. 
so when they when he was exiled <clears throat> there were a lot of protests uh, not just by catholics but by non-catholics too said this guy is very important to our community and we want him back <clears throat> and they so that was one of the reasons i think <clears throat> the vatican got involved because they were became aware that they had this rather exceptional guy out there who, who was saying things that were uncomfortable for the hierarchy and they wanted to hear him and they did so that's my short version of uh, why he was he ended up uh, in the 1930s uh, deciding that the big issue for China was uh, the aggression of the Japanese starting off in Manchuria and then more broadly and he uh, felt that as a somebody who was committed to China he should be helping the resistance to Japan and uh, he ended up his days uh, engaged in that sort of thing in medical corps uh, <clears throat> organizing people to to support uh, the resistance to Japan didn't he try and organize a Catholic well, army? Well, he talked about it. Uh, the, the Chinese government at the time decided, no, they didn't want to do that. Uh, but he did have a uh, medical corps, <clears throat> a ch um, stretcher bearers. <clears throat> and he also recruited, uh, the, the, these were religious types, that is, the brothers. He had sort of established a, uh, a, a religious order. And uh, he, the people who were in that, both female and male, uh, helped out in this medical work, support being sort of backup to the to the army, the Chinese army. <clears throat> but he apparently also recruited uh, non-religious people as sharp Catholics <laughs> who would be sharpshooters who would who would actually engage in <laughs> battle. How much of that actually happened, I'm not sure. But he was he was made a given mil, military rank by the Chinese government at the time. Uh, eventually, a, a general. He was given the rank of a general. And he became a Chinese yes, citizen. Yes, he did. Uh, this was unusual, I think. Um, uh, but uh, I haven't found other cases of people who actually went all the way. Uh, he, before his exile, he'd begun to look into it, <clears throat> but then he was off in Europe for six years. And when he came back, one of the first things he worked at was to uh, was to become a Chinese citizen, gave up his Belgian citizenship, and he also left his the religious order he'd been in uh, because he was otherwise under its discipline, and uh, it was a great impediment to his, the freedom of his activities uh, that he had to uh, if he was in that. Uh, that order. Up to that point, he was technically obeyed all the orders given him, but uh, it was obviously a problem. And since he created his own religious orders there in China, he, he had one he could join up with without without being told what to do anymore. <laughs> uh, he had a bishop. He had a Chinese order. bishop, and uh, uh, well, that, <clears throat> that that made things easier. This is a. A fascinating story, and uh, we've taken up a lot of your time, so I'd like to end then with the traditional New Books Network question. Uh, what are you working well, on now? I, uh, I'm retired, and uh, I don't have any major project um, underway. I have a lot of material from this uh, one I've completed that became the book, and I have various thoughts about how I might make articles here and there. I accumulate a lot of data, uh, which I haven't uh, fully used yet, um, including about the finances of the of the missions, uh, which is kind of interesting, um, how they became actually kind of wealthy because the French government was giving them 
uh, was managing to extract from the Chinese government lots of indemnities, and they, uh, especially in the wake of the Boxer uprising, but even before that, they uh, had been accumulating large funds, which they often invested, and they became uh, heavily invested in land and other and real estate in the major cities. Um, so the Catholic Church, uh, thanks to uh, taxes paid by the Chinese people <laughs> became a rather wealthy institution in China. Of course, that all changed when the communists came. Huh. But up to that point, uh, it'd be interesting to to sort of track that down more fully. Anyway, that's one of the thoughts I have about what I would do. Sure. Well, that that sounds fascinating to me because I I work in um, about the same time period as you're doing on Korean Catholicism, where the church was extraordinarily poor. Um, they had very little money because they yeah. they had no no boxer indemnity or or and the uh, French um, did, were not interested in having a protector yeah. in Korea. Yes. So they they were uh, having yeah. a hard time there. Yeah. Yes, it's quite a different story, I think, in Korea. Yeah, what little I know about it, but I uh, like to see your, your what you've done with that. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to share it. Well, thank you again. Um, for taking the time yeah. to be with us today. And uh, have a good day, Dr. Young, and I would encourage the readers, go out. This is a great book, um, and have a look at it. Bye-bye. You have been listening to the Christian Studies channel of the New Books Network. This is Dr. Franklin Rausch, one of the hosts of this channel. I just want to thank you for listening and hope you'll come back again soon.